As Lomas mentioned a, a while ago, we're talking about the resurrection. Obviously, Britt's going to speak about the resurrection on Easter. He has in mind the non-believers, yes? We want non-believers to come to the knowledge of the truth and to repent of their sins and be saved. This resurrection message is for the Christians, so you and myself included. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. That we would engage with passion in the kingdom work of God and in the mission that he's called us to uh, take part in. Paul right now is speaking to the Corinthian church and he is charging others. He's charging the Corinthian church with the most fundamental belief of Christianity. The most central, most fundamental, most important belief of Christianity. The resurrection. He's speaking about the resurrection. Now I want you to notice as we read the first eight verses. As he spills out his claim, as he makes the claim of the resurrection and why it's the truth, something unique about the way Paul goes about it. Now, the purpose I say this is because people make claims all day long. They've been making claims when Paul was alive. They certainly make claims today. People make claims. If you have a, a, an unction for the truth, you're going to make a claim about it, and it doesn't matter what you aspire to or what you believe, whether you're Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, uh, whether you're a Christian, whether you're new age, old age, underage, whatever. The Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door, the Mormon on the bicycle, the skeptic at Starbucks, your best friend, your family member, whoever it is and whatever it is, everyone has a truth claim. Even the person that says there is no truth makes a truth claim. And so Paul, immersed in a culture where truth claims are prevalent, makes his own truth claim. And it's the one that we abide by and the one that we stand by. But listen to Paul. He doesn't just make the claim. He provides a trail of evidence. Let's read. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you in this place, Lord. We worship you because all of this revolves around the claims that you made, Lord. You claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and there was no other way to get to the Father except through you. Your followers made the same claims that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as those who have been saved by your precious blood and by your grace and mercy, Lord, we want to learn from you, Lord. We want to learn about you. We want to be more passionate about the kingdom. We want to be more passionate about your calling in our lives. We don't want just head knowledge today. We don't want to just learn theology. We want it to get into our hearts and we want it to affect us for the glory of God. And so Lord, as your church, which you purchased, we pray, Lord, that you would sanctify your church. We pray that you would cleanse us by the renewing of our minds, by the washing of the water in the word. And we recognize that we are created for you and for your glory. And so, Lord, present to yourself this church. 
present to yourself this church that we would glorify you in every single thing that we do, Lord. We want the lost to see us and look beyond us and to see the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe right off the bat that you are risen from the dead. We pray that you would make that an even deeper reality in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. That's Paul's heart for the Corinthian church and that's Paul's heart for the whole church is that we would be passionate about this reality we call the resurrection. It's not just folklore. It's not a myth. It's not something that we tell our children. This actually, really, historically happened. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Paul wants us to make clear that this is important because there's a lot at stake with the resurrection, right? There's a lot at stake when we talk about Jesus rising from the dead. Paul says in verse one, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So the gospel is at stake when we talk about the resurrection. In verse two, he says, the gospel by which you also are saved if you hold fast. So you're Right to be saved, your salvation, your redemption from your sins is at stake when we talk about the resurrection. He goes on to say, uh, I believe it's in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Our redemption, the gospel, even our faith, what we believe as a church, Paul would have us believe, hey, reality carpenteria, do you understand and do you realize that if Jesus did not physically resurrect from the dead, We're all idiots for gathering here this morning. We might as well go home and try something else. Paul says everything is at stake when we discuss the resurrection. Now, he goes in, uh, we're gonna have to keep this in mind. Remember what Lomas said, Easter, two weeks. Now our work is done, right? We don't have to preach the gospel to our friends. We take them to church, we let the pastor preach the word, and we want them to get saved. But we do have work. We have preemptive work. We pray, right? What's the use of preaching to a heart that has not been softened by the prayers of the church? What's the use of preaching or doing an apologetic or screaming at somebody if you haven't been praying for them ahead of time? And if we really believe in the reality of a resurrected Jesus Christ, we would be doing that night and day with tears in our eyes for the lost to be saved. Now, you don't have to remember every single thing that I'm going to tell you today. You don't have to remember anything, actually. I just want you to leave this building more bold about the truth, knowing that it happened, being more bold, more empowered, more stoked, more filled with the Holy Spirit to preach a gospel of the resurrected Christ. Now, Let's move on to verse two. Paul says, this gospel by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says, unless you believe in vain, literally, unless you believe without duly considering what it is you're believing. That is to say, unless you just kind of took this from someone else, it's not really your own faith, you haven't made, taken ownership over it, you just kind of lightly believe because, I don't know, I'm a Christian, that's what I do, resurrection, hoorah. He's saying, I don't want the church to believe haphazardly about their faith. Everything is at stake when we talk about the resurrection. I don't want you to think thoughtlessly about this stuff. I don't want you to think at random at this stuff. I don't want you to think in a, in a haphazard manner without duly considering the claims that I am making, church, and as Paul would say, I'm making 
huge claims. I'm making huge claims right now. He doesn't want us to believe in vain, but he wants us to believe because we're convicted that it's actually true. When you're actually convicted in your heart that it is true, that will change your life. I can go out there and do whatever God has called me to do based on what Brit tells me is true, and that'll get me so far, but when I know what reality is, it will change my entire life, and hopefully those around me. That's Paul's thought in mind. Furthermore, we're not even supposed to feed other people blind faith anyway. We're not supposed to obligate people to make these giant leaps. God doesn't. We're to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks us to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We're to give an explanation, literally, to give an explanation for why we believe. Well, Britt told me. Well, my parents told me. No. Why do you believe? We're to give an explanation to those who want to know the hope that is in us. Now Paul practices what he preaches and in the next few verses he is about to explain the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's move to verse three. I love this verse. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. There you go, there's a gospel, in case you were wondering. (laughs) There's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Died on the cross, buried, risen three days later. Done. Paul just summarizes the gospel. Now this is interesting. In verse three, those two words, delivered, received. Take note of those two words. Delivered, received, delivered, received, received, delivered. Those two words are technical terms in first century Judaism. They are technical terms having to do with the transmission of information. You told me something that was important, okay, I'm gonna tell someone else. They didn't write it down, they didn't email each other, they didn't snail mail each other, they transmitted important information by word of mouth, oral transmission, oral transmission, that's what these words received and delivered are talking about. So verses three through five is a creed. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, as the Lord inspired him, but he got this part from somebody else. Verses three through five. Now, anytime I'm talking with my friends and I bring up oral tradition or oral transmission, first thing they do is, oh, like telephone. Telephone, right? We played that in high school. We sit around in a semicircle. This one person starts off with some basic truth, like I love Jesus, and then he whispers it into the next person's ear. He's all, okay, sweet. He whispers it into the next person's ear. And by the time you get around that circle, it has nothing to do with what you started with originally. And people are like, oh, telephone, oral transmission of important information. And they reason by that, by that example. Oh, Jesus didn't actually write anything down. He told people. And 2,000 years later, we're getting what has been told. I play telephone, so if A plus B equals C, then we don't, we can't really trust what Jesus said. It's not like telephone. Okay, I'll just skip ahead to the answer. It's not like telephone, okay? (laughs) The difference is between our culture and their culture. See, we don't need to memorize anything, and most of us don't. If you're like me, I don't know a single phone number to save my life, except my wife's. 
right? Sometimes, because she's on speed dial. <laughs> we live in a microwavable speed dial world where we can just Google everything and it comes to us. We don't need to memorize anything. And I can see it put into practice in my own life because I can't, for the life of me, remember people's names. It's hard. <laughs> Not so for the Jews, especially in the first century. They were capable of retaining huge amounts of information and able to recite them at will. In fact, they had to. A typical Jew did not have their own copy of the scriptures. Their whole life was based on the scriptures. So they had to memorize everything and transmit it to their children and their children's children and so on and so forth. They had to do it. Now, if you're like me, you also might have a hard time memorizing scripture as well, not just phone numbers. Do you remember uh, a year or so ago, Brit used to have us stand up at the end of every service and, and recite a memory verse that we remembered from the past week? It usually came from the message. He would be like, okay, here's a verse. Remember it for next week. We need to memorize scripture. We need to get it into our hearts. The following week, we'd get up. He'd have us stand up and recite it in unison with just fervent voices. We'd recite the word of God. And then it got harder and harder and longer and longer until I think one week he came to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter. And we had to memorize the love chapter. And so we had a week to memorize this. And you remember if some of you were there, we showed up. Britt said, all right, let's all stand up and recite chapter on love. And we'd start off just so fervently. I was so excited. But you could tell who memorized it and who didn't. As you just started to make your way through the verse, everyone started off the same, right? Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love is not hate, love is so great. <laughs> what he said. It's hard for our culture to memorize stuff. It's hard for us to memorize stuff to the effect that the Jews did. They were very good at it. Listen, a young Jewish boy would have memorized the entire Torah by the time he was 10 years old. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, word for word, verbatim. 10 years old. What do you think they were capable of at 30 years old? They were capable of transmitting important information to you and I. Now, most scholars hold that Paul received what we just read, verses three through five, the gospel. Most scholars hold that he received those verses from Peter and James themselves. You remember, book of Acts, and I think Galatians, Paul gets converted, goes away for three years, comes back to Jerusalem to hang out with the disciples to get schooled on what he missed out on. He's getting educated by the pillars of the faith. Um, and if this is true, we have reason to believe that it's true. Paul would have learned this important creed of the gospel within five years of the crucifixion. And by firsthand witnesses, primary sources to the event right then and there. And so he gets converted, he gets saved, goes off for a few years, comes back, gets the creed. Now, where do you think Peter and James got it from? <laughs> Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 
Luke chapter 24, verse 44. In this chapter, Jesus just rose from the dead. Now he's eating broiled fish sticks with his disciples. And he says this in verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you. While I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now listen to what he says in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. What just happened? Jesus is kicking it with the apostles, with the disciples, and he's saying, I told you guys. The scripture that you have done so well to memorize has been telling you all this time there would be a Messiah that dies and gets raised again on the third day. And I told you, and I did it. I pulled it off. Hello. Now that you have been eyewitnesses of what has happened, you go tell people based on your eyewitness testimony, based on your primary source, because you know the truth. You know the reality. Go spread it around. And so they go out and start telling everybody, and this new convert by the name of Paul ends up in Jerusalem wanting to get filled in on Christianity, and Peter and James deliver verses three through five, the gospel to him, and he ends up reciting it to the church in Corinth. Now what Paul is delivering to the church in Corinth and to us is the gospel, but remember, it's not just that claim. He's laying out the evidence, he's laying out facts which today we're able to prove as trustworthy. We're gonna go over four facts this morning. There's a dozen of them. We're gonna go over four of them this morning. First one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. Paul says Christ died, right? In order to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. We have to establish that Jesus actually died by crucifixion. Now. We don't have to take Paul at his word for it. We can just trust the eyewitnesses and what they say through all of the gospels, which is the earliest source we have. For example, John in John chapter 19, verse 26, John was an eyewitness. He speaks of Jesus seeing his mother and it says, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. I love that by the way, John just referring to himself in the third person as the disciple who Jesus loved. We should actually all do that. But he refers to Jesus. He sees Jesus on the cross right then and there. Well, Lazo, that's great. Good for John. I don't believe the Bible. <laughs> I don't believe that it's inspired. I don't believe that it's inerrant. I don't even believe that God wrote it. I believe that the disciples were biased and were conspiring against the whole world and they wanted to start Christianity. So I don't believe you're John. Or would you believe secular sources that say the same? Would you believe Secular sources that are hostile against Christianity that attest to the same fact. For example, Lucian of Samosota. Lucian was a Greek. He wrote satire. Early church history, Saturday Night Live. Lucian of Samosota. 
Lucian loved to mock people, and he loved especially to mock Christians for their superstition. He wrote entire plays mocking Christians, and yet from Lucian's own writing, he says, the Christians, you know, they worship a man to this day, a distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account, recognized even by hostile sources. How about the Talmud? Talmud is a group of writings by the Jews. It's not Christian. The Jews were opposed to Christianity. From the late second century, it says, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Yeshu, Joshua, Jesus, hung on the tree. We even have writings from prisoners, Mara Bar Serapion, writing to his son from prison saying, what advantage came to the Jews by the murder of their wise king, seeing from that very time their kingdom was driven away from them, referring to the death of Jesus Christ. Is anyone here familiar with the Jesus Seminar? The Jesus Seminar, some of you are, sorry. For those of you that are familiar with liberal Christianity, right? This isn't the Wikipedia definite definition of liberal Christianity, but it's mine. Liberal Christianity or liberal theology says, I like the Bible, but I don't believe anything in it. <laughs> I'm going to pick and choose what I want. Just pick and choose. I like that. I like that. Jesus didn't really say that. I don't really like that. So gone. About 150 to 200 scholars started the Jesus Seminar. The co-founder, his name was John Dominic Crossan. John Dominic Crossan, the co-founder of this liberal theology movement called the Jesus Seminar, denies miracles, doesn't believe in the virgin birth, doesn't believe in the resurrection. And yet even the most hostile, most liberal, and most skeptical scholars today, like John Crossan, says this, he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. History proves that Jesus was crucified and died on the cross. Paul goes on to fact number two in verse five. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Fact number two is this. For whatever reason, the disciples claimed and believed that they saw the risen Jesus. Well, they were wrong. Well, we're not there yet. <laughs> What we're establishing now is that the disciples claimed and believed that they saw the risen Jesus. Not one of them, not Thomas and Peter, all of them claimed to see a risen Jesus. We know this from Paul's own testimony. Remember, Paul was, he was like comrades with them. They hung out. They were tight. Paul says, yeah, I, I hung out with the disciples. They claimed to see Jesus in the flesh. We know it from those creeds that are riddled all throughout the New Testament, some of the earliest writings of Jesus um, that we have. We also have other writings. In addition to the Gospels, the Apostolic Fathers. These were guys that were discipled by the disciples. So they hung out with the disciples too. So for example, John the Apostle, bless his heart, I love him. John the Apostle discipled a man by the name of Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp of Smyrna discipled a man by the name of Irenaeus. And they both say, yeah, we hung out with John. And he claimed to see a real breathing Jesus after the crucifixion. Well, Chris, that's great. A lot of people make claims. You just said that a while ago. 
Here's the difference when we talk about the apostles. We have seven ancient sources that attest to their martyrdom for their beliefs in seeing a risen Jesus. The book of Acts tells us that they suffered. We also see it in the writings of Tertullian. He's the one that tells us Paul was beheaded at the hands of Nero for his faith. Peter was fastened to a cross. Polycarp, Ignatius, Origen, Eusebius, the list goes on. The earliest writings that we have attest to the fact that these men died for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. But we have a lot of martyrs, right? I mean, we have martyrs today that die for their beliefs. So what? Whether it's the Twin Towers or the suicide jackets or the bombs strapped to chests, people do that today. Am I to believe what they're claiming because they died for their faith? There's a stark difference between modern day martyrs and actually any martyr and the disciples of Jesus Christ because modern day martyrs die for what someone else told them to be the truth. Maybe it's in the Quran. Maybe it's in the Book of Mormon. Maybe it's in their holy scriptures. They all die. Modern martyrs die for what someone else told them. The disciples died for what they saw themselves. Big difference. Now, with that second point that Paul makes, we can establish this according to history. The disciples proved with their blood that they actually believed in what they were saying. They believed in the claims that they were making and they claimed to see a risen Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in verse six. I love how he just throws out verse six. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. You have to understand that this letter would be written and read to the church. And Paul is saying, he wasn't there at the church, but the pastor would be reading this letter and saying, apparently 500 people saw the risen Jesus. Some of them are dead, but the rest of them are alive and they're over there. Go ask them if you want. Verse six. Verse seven. Fact number three. And he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now this isn't James the disciple. This is James the just. Half brother of Jesus. What's the difference? Why should I believe the half brother of Jesus? Of course he believes Jesus' testimony. They're like flesh and blood. Of course he believes. No, he didn't believe. Again, the earliest writings that we have about James, even in the gospels, tell us that James was a skeptic. James did not believe in Jesus' ministry. Half brother or not, he was opposed. He was a pious Jew, weirded out by the things that he saw. He did not believe in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We see a dramatic change take place in the life of James. We don't know a lot about him, but here's what we do know according to the gospels. James was an unbeliever during Jesus' ministry. Skeptical, unbeliever during Jesus' ministry. Then as we read these creeds, it mentions that Jesus appeared to James all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we find that James is identified as the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church 
the central church of that day. Not only that, not only did he convert and become the pastor of that church, but his beliefs were so strong that he died as a martyr for believing that a Jesus resurrected. What happened to James? How do we resolve these issues? He was a skeptic. Speaking of skeptics, verse eight, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul, as you know, as you read the gospels, and as you probably have heard anyway, Paul, likewise, was not a friend of Christianity. He was more than skeptical, he was actually hostile towards the Jesus movement. Everything about Paul screamed against Christianity to the effect that he went on a mission, his own little missions trip, to capture Christians and drag them into prison and kill them if need be. Do you find it interesting that they give us eyewitness testimony while they are still hostile to the faith? Of course the disciples love Jesus, but James and Paul give us eyewitness testimony when they're on their, on their way to skepticism in the, in the case of James or like Paul is on his way to imprison Christians. What we have here are two eyewitness testimonies that are hostile to the Christian faith, lending more validity to their testimony. Here's what we know about Paul, similar to James. Pious Jew, a Pharisee on his way to imprison Christians Somehow, something happens. He claims that he sees the risen Jesus Christ. It changes his life dramatically. Everyone around him, his own lips, his friends, Luke, writing the gospel, tells us of this. Early Christians in Judea tell us of this. Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Dionysius of Corinth, Origen, all these men write about this incredible change that happened in the life of Paul. Now I want to ask you and myself, what in the world would cause this chain of events? What in the world would cause this chain of events? Let me remind you. It can be established as history that Jesus died on the cross by crucifixion. Whether you want to believe in his resurrection or not, we can also establish as history that for whatever reason, his weakling disciples died for believing they saw a resurrected Jesus. We can also establish that James the skeptic claimed to see the resurrected Christ, converts to Christianity, becomes the lead pastor of the central church of that day, and then dies for his belief in seeing a resurrected Jesus. Paul, an enemy of Christianity on his way to attack Christians for whatever reason, converts to Christianity, becomes the biggest friend and ally of Christianity, writes a third of the New Testament, and then dies for his belief in a resurrected Jesus Christ. What happened to these men? How do you account for these facts? These have been established, attested to, solidified, how do these play out if it wasn't the resurrection? People do give reasons. Well, I don't believe in the resurrection, so it can't be that. 
Because that's illogical to think that a man could rise from the dead. That doesn't happen. I know science, and that doesn't happen. Listen, miracles don't happen if you, believe in, if you don't believe in God. Then it's illogical. It's only unreasonable if you don't believe in a God in heaven that can raise someone from the dead. If there is a God in heaven, that doesn't seem like too much of a problem. I, for one, believe that God made the heavens and the earth by what I see and what has been proven to me and what I know about reality. That in order for there to be a design, there must be a designer. In order for there to be a big bang, there must be a big banger. (laughs) If there is a God, the problem with resurrections and miracles goes away. So it's not illogical to think that that's a possibility. Are there any other possibilities? This is the first one I hear. Well, Chris, yes. And in order to give a different possibility other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of these facts, remember, which has been established, has to be left to the side. For example, the crucifixion of Jesus. He didn't die. That's a possibility. In fact, it says in the Quran in Surah 4 that he didn't die by crucifixion. And people claim that to this day. He just swooned. He was on the cross and he passed out. And they thought he was dead, so they took him off the cross. They put him in the grave. He lay there, but he actually wasn't dead. He woke up. He was great. He walked out of the tomb and he started Christianity and everyone was stoked. (sighs) Now let's think carefully, right? Before we disregard that claim, let's think about it and let's see if it's actually possible. What would entail that actually happening? Let's just say, let's just get far-fetched and say he survived the cross, which by the way is almost impossible, but it's a tangent. Let's just say he survived the cross and made it into the grave and he was actually alive. Now what? Do you know in John, it says that he was wrapped in a hundred pounds of linen and myrrh and spices? A hundred pounds. And if he's not dead, he's surely half dead. If you know anything about the flagrum, the scourge, and the crucifixion, this guy is half dead, at least. So what you're telling me (laughs) is that Jesus got up, wrapped like a mummy in a hundred pounds of linen and cloth, walked over to the heavy stone and pushed it out of the way? Do you know that when a crucifixion happens, the nail doesn't actually go in the palm of your hands. Medical studies and uh, historical research tell us that the nail actually goes into the wrist. It's about a five to eight inch long spike. It goes straight through those two bones, the ulna, and it pierces the median nerve. That results in an excruciating pain shooting up the arm and into the brain. It also results in the loss of your fingers in your hand, paralysis of the hands. So Jesus got up, half dead, wrapped in a hundred pounds of garment, and pushed the stone out of the way with his paralyzed hands? And then what are we to believe? That he beat up four trained killers guarding his tomb? And then he walked on nail-pierced feet to Peter's house and said, hey, it's okay, I'm risen. 
Even if that were possible, and it's not, I'm telling you that is impossible and unreasonable to think. Even if it were possible, do you really think that Peter, by the sight that he saw at his door, would then go out into the world and save thousands by the gospel and die for his faith? Nay, not even Peter, but all of his friends and apostles that claimed to see a resurrected Jesus. And do you think that Paul and James, who had no part in that agenda, saw this half-dead creature and said, oh, sick, okay, I'm going to convert now. (laughs) Any of these theories that deny the resurrection have to cut out one of these facts. Facts have a nasty way of getting in the way, by the way. I want you to note that many people do convert, just like James and Paul. Many people convert to religions. They do that today. In fact, I converted to Christianity. Yay. But the difference between me and everyone else that converts to any religion and the apostles, remember, is that they claim to see Jesus. I am basing my faith on what somebody else told me, whether that's my pastor, my parents, or the apostles. I am basing my faith on the word of another, not so with these martyrs. They based everything on what their eyes told them was a reality. Now, after surveying the facts throughout my life, I came to the conclusion that the most reasonable explanation for the facts at hand is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit and lives right now in flesh and blood at the right hand of the Father. That makes sense given the evidence. Now that's a creed for us. It's in our statement of faith. It says so on the website. Do we really believe it? Of course we do. We're going to Easter. We're bringing friends. We better believe it. Do we really believe it? Or is it folklore? Is it a nice story? Is it something that we hope to be true? Is it something that we're barely grasping? If it is a reality, if the resurrection is a literal historical fact, what does it mean in the life of the Christian? What does it mean for you and me? Embrace yourself because it means a lot. Paul says in Romans chapter six, verse four, therefore we have been raised, or excuse me, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, so we too might walk in newness of life. As Christians who have died to our flesh, we are also resurrected. We didn't just lay there, just like Jesus didn't stay in the grave. We are to walk in newness of life. Some of us profess Jesus all day long. Some of us profess Jesus Christ raised all day long and yet never started walking to begin with. We got uh, saved and we just stayed right where we were. Some of us started walking, but then we stopped for whatever reason. Entangled back in the sin that, that used to own us. We went back to our old ways. We got sidetracked by a relationship. We lost our job. We had trouble in the home. 
We got proud. We got ambitious. We started chasing money. We started doubting. Whatever reason it is, some of us started off strong, walking in newness of life, and then we stopped. And then maybe a few of us never started walking, didn't even stop, but we were backtracking since day one. Or we're backtracking right now. We confess with our mouths a resurrected Jesus, but we show the people around us a faith that Paul calls without due consideration. Haphazard, thoughtless, and random. By the way we live or by the way that we don't live, we put Christ back in the grave. I got good news. History has proven that Jesus is actually not in the grave. So if we're putting Christ back in the grave, we're living the pipe dream. We need to wake up. We need to wake up to the reality that Jesus is alive. Jonathan Edwards, famous revival preacher from the 18th century in the Great Awakening, was so affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ in his life that it pushed him to preach the gospel and thousands of people got saved. But even when he was not preaching the gospel, he was listening to it and soaking it up and letting that reality sink into his heart. And he understood of all people that the reality must affect us, not simply the head knowledge. We know Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, we got there. Edwards would say it needs to affect the very deepest part of our being. He once said, nothing is more manifest in fact than that the things of religion take hold of men's souls no further than they affect them. That reality will take a hold of your soul no further than you let it affect you. Edwards went on to describe all of the things that we know to be true. We know Jesus rose from the dead. We know he died on the cross. We've been Christians all of our lives. We go to reality carpenteria. What? We know the Bible. We know all of this stuff. We see the glory of the Lord. We worship on the carpets. We get intimate with God. We pray for each other. God is moving. We know all of that stuff. And yet, as Edwards would say, yet they remain as before with no sensible alteration, either in heart or practice, because they are not affected with what they hear. Are we continuing to let the reality of the resurrection affect us Or have we switched on autopilot? Edwards knew this. Another great awakening preacher from the 18th century, George Whitfield, wrote in his journals, I was preaching to a packed out house today, the gospel. I couldn't help but notice Jonathan Edwards sitting in the back row. He had his face buried in his hands and he was crying through the entire thing. A man that is affected by the truth went past the head knowledge, went into the heart because he knew it to be true. A hundred times more in tune with that truth were the apostles. Twelve apostles didn't believe this haphazardly. Why? Because they actually saw the risen Lord. Look at how their lives were affected by it. 44 AD, James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded for his belief and claim to see a risen Jesus Christ. 
Matthew, the tax collector in 66 AD, was nailed to the ground with short spears and then had his head cut off for believing and claiming that he saw a risen Jesus. Simon the Zealot, two years later, was painfully tortured and crucified by the governor of Syria for believing that he saw a risen Jesus. Matthias, stoned at Jerusalem, then beheaded for believing that he saw a risen Jesus. Jude, in 72 AD, was crucified at Edessa. Why? Because he claimed that he saw a Jesus walking. Thomas. Thomas the doubter didn't believe in the resurrection either. Pipe dream to Thomas. Let me tell you, it's nothing like the living God walking into the room where you are that will change your entire worldview forever. And so it was with doubting Thomas. He saw the risen Lord and it changed his life forever. You remember last week, Don Richardson told us that there are churches in southern India today that can be attributed to doubting Thomas. Started by doubting Thomas. It was in Kalamina, India that Thomas met his death, tortured by angry pagans. They ran him through with spears and threw his body into the flames of an oven alive for believing that he saw a risen Jesus. He was affected. Bartholomew, beat cruelly by pagans and then crucified for believing that he saw a risen Jesus. When I say beat cruelly, I mean beat cruelly. It was written that King Ostiagus of Armenia, which is modern day Turkey, ordered Bartholomew to be beaten with rods, suspended upside down on a cross, and then skinned alive. You ever peel a potato? That's what actually happened to Bartholomew. After he was beaten with rods, suspended on a cross, and filleted alive, he was still conscious and continued to exhort the people to believe in a risen Jesus Christ and to worship the one true God. He kept preaching with such fervency and such conviction over the reality that he knew to be true that they had to cut his head off to shut him up. Andrew, crucified in Edessa on an X-shaped cross for claiming to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. It was said and written that Andrew, as he was being brought near to his place of crucifixion, to the very cross that he would be fastened to, he wasn't afraid. The fear that maybe I would have expected to rise up in my heart did not rise up in his. Instead, a fervent love for a risen Jesus Christ rose up in his heart and took control of his mouth. And he looked at that cross as he was getting nearer to it and he said, cried out at the top of his lungs, oh cross, most welcome, most welcome and longed for. With a willing mind, I joyfully come to you being the disciple of him who hung on you. Speaking of Jesus, who he saw raised from the dead with his own eyes, willing to die for it. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus spent six hours on the cross. If you know anything about the cross, that should make you shudder. Jesus spent six hours on the cross, bearing our sin and the wrath of God. Praise God. Andrew spent three days on the cross. And there, hanging alive for three days, Andrew 
preached the gospel of a risen Savior until his tongue gave out. What about Peter? I think I relate most to Peter. Not his gifts and not really anything good about Peter, but all the bad stuff. Foot in his mouth all the time. Never has the right thing to say. Always says the wrong thing at the wrong time. Shy about the gospel. Couldn't even tell a servant girl about Jesus as Jesus was being drug away onto the cross. I relate to that. What changed Peter's heart? Reality. He saw a risen Jesus Christ. The same man who could not even share the gospel with a little girl who questioned him. A little while later, preached to the very people that he was afraid of. Thousands of people got saved and he got martyred for his belief in a risen Jesus Christ. What happened to Peter? Hegesippus tells us that Peter, going back to Rome at the end of his earthly ministry, knew that he was facing death at the hands of Nero. He went anyway. He was arrested, brought to his place of martyrdom, And Hegesippus tells us that Peter requested that he be crucified in an upside down position. Do you know why? Because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same position as his risen Lord and Savior. This was the same guy that walked with Jesus for three years and was so fleshly, and was so broken, and was so weak, that when a little girl asked him if he was a follower of Jesus, he said, no, curse me if I've ever lied, curse me. I am not a follower of Jesus Christ. He tells us that he saw a risen Jesus Christ, preached to thousands, many got saved, and he is led off to his crucifixion as a result of this. Do you know what happens when you get crucified upside down? Your esophagus falls into your throat and you suffocate to death. What happened to Peter, the spineless, gutless Galilean fisherman that couldn't even talk to little girls? What happened to Peter? Paul tells us he saw Jesus risen from the dead. John was in Ephesus where he was arrested and sent to Rome. They cast him into a large vessel filled with boiling oil and it didn't harm him. Emperor Diocletian was so frustrated with this impenetrable body, so frustrated with his apostle John that he just banished him to the Isle of Patmos where John ended up writing the book of Revelation. John is the only apostle to escape a violent death for believing that they saw a risen Jesus Christ. That was reality to them because they were eyewitnesses of that very thing. Look at how it affected them. Should it not affect us as well? We probably won't meet martyrdom because we live in California. And that is the danger, friends. Those men had a line drawn in the sand and they had to choose and they knew Jesus Christ. And so they chose Jesus. Us living in California, in America, don't have that kind of pressure 
on our faith. Man, I pray that we would. They knew reality that Jesus is no longer in the, gla- in the grave. And those that are convicted the most by that reality, by that truth, will live according to that truth. The people that are most convicted by the resurrection will live most according to that resurrection. Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead to save you just so that you could ride into heaven on autopilot. Jesus tells us that before the foundations of the world, he has preordained good works for the bride of Christ to walk in now. He died on the cross that you would walk in newness of life and he was resurrected from the dead that you would be affecting those around you by the truth, that you would be engaging in the mission of the kingdom of God. And most importantly, that you would be falling madly in love with Jesus Christ. Madly in love with Jesus Christ because you know what actually happened. If one of these areas does not add up in one of our lives, if we're looking at those things and we're going, that doesn't sound like me, maybe there's an area in our lives that needs to be resurrected as well. So I invite you as my brothers and sisters and friends in Christ to repent this morning if that is you. As Christians, we should welcome that word repentance. It's not a bad word. I repent every day because I know that my sin drives me farther and farther away from the Lord that I love and repentance brings me closer to him. And so if you are a Christian, I invite you to repent of whatever it is that is stifling the reality of the resurrection of Christ in your lives. Paul gave us four facts showing us the validity of the resurrection. There is plenty more than that. Right now, I want to give you four reasons why the resurrection should revive your passion, Christian. Because of the resurrection, he gives us repentance and forgiveness of sins. Praise God. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we now enjoy his personal fellowship with us always. Because Jesus was raised, he has received the promise of the Spirit and has poured out the Spirit upon us. Jesus' resurrection was the beginning and the guarantee of our resurrection. When one day our bodies will be resurrected from the grave, we will live with Christ forever and for eternity. Good news, we don't have to wait until that happens yet. We don't have to wait until our bodies die and to be resurrected. We don't have to wait until the sweet by and by, so to speak. We can be resurrected in our inner man now. We can be resurrected to newness of life in the here and now. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will breathe life into your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwells in you. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything for your worldview, for your decisions in life, for the way you treat your wife and your husband, for what you make money for, for your ambitions, for your wants, for your desires, for the way that you act around your friends, for the way that you act in your workplace. The resurrection changes everything about the Christian's life. Everything. So don't go back to your sin. Don't go back to your old life. Don't go back to your flesh. Don't go back to the plan that you used to have. Don't go back to alcohol. Don't go back to pornography. Don't go back to lust. 
Don't go back to self-righteousness. Don't go back to self-works. Don't go back to the carnal. Don't go back to the way that you wanted to do things. Don't go back to self-promotion and self-ambition. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, author of Hebrews tells us, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. For faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our faith is grounded in valid reasons to believe that this actually happened. Our conviction in things not seen. Friends, let your convictions this morning lie in the person, the identity, and the finished work of Jesus Christ who has conquered death, sin, and the grave on your behalf and you walk in that victory in the name of Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is risen, let me hear you say he is risen. He's risen indeed. Heavenly Father, we believe. As the apostles would say, help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. We have it in our heads. We understand what happened, but sometimes, and I speak for myself, Lord. Maybe it's true for some, some other people in this room, but when the time comes to share our faith, well, when the time comes to make a, a, an extraordinary decision or someone asks about it, those doubts creep in and Lord, we want that to be done. Thank you, Lord, that you have put us in this amazing country, Lord, in this wonderful place you've put it, us in, Lord, and we can be able to, we can just worship you in this building without fear of persecution and martyrdom. We don't have to fear those things like the apostles did we don't have to fear half the things that people around the world have to fear for believing in you. We can come freely and worship in an air-conditioned, wonderful little building. Lord, please, for the sake of your holiness and for the sake of the glory of your name, please do not let that freedom blind us to our calling and our mission. Please do not let us get cold. We don't want to have to face you and for you to say, man, I wish you could have been hot or cold something useful, but instead you are lukewarm. You have no use because you do nothing. Lord, please don't let us do that. Please don't let us be that. Thank you, Lord, that you have already worked in this church. You have worked mightily in this body. We're just asking, Lord, that you would do more. Get us on mission. Help us engage in the kingdom of God in the context in which you placed us. We do this for your glory and your glory alone. King of kings, Lord of lords, we love you. So we worship the Lord this morning. Do whatever you have to do to get into the presence of God. If you need to get on your face on the carpets or take communion or get prayer for whatever it is, by all means and for the glory of God, get with Jesus Christ this morning.